the South African is very worrisome. It has the 501 mutation, but then it has two additional mutations in the spike protein. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. There is a lot to talk about in this week's episode, from new variants of the virus to new vaccines in the pipeline. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang. Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thank you in advance for your time. We have a lot to unpack today. Uh, there is new data about uh, infection rates. Uh, obviously, there's a new administration in place, and they're taking new approaches. Uh, there's also new reports coming out about um, other strains of the virus and how it's morphing and questions about the efficacy of existing vaccines as well as new vaccines that are now coming on stream. So I really appreciate having both of you here to help unpack the information of what people should know. So, Fred, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, around reports uh, just today of uh, several cases of the South African strain now being reported in South Carolina and, and possibly elsewhere. Maybe you can talk to us about the emerging strains, the Great Britain, South African uh, strain, and sort of how this virus mutates and what people should expect. All right, David. Yeah, this is a very disturbing development. Um, the, the first of all, the United Kingdom variant, it has a remember all the vaccines are directed against the spike protein, the full length spike protein. And the UK variant only has a single amino acid change at 501. It has mutations in other part of the virus, but that's not important for as far as the vaccine goes. And also, it seems that mutations in the spike protein make the virus, can make the virus more infectious. And because it binds to the, the ACE2 receptors more tightly, that means you could use fewer viral particles could efficiently infect someone. So that's a worry. But the good news about the UK, as far as we can tell, the vaccines see that one fine. The South African is very worrisome. It has the 501 mutation, but then it has two additional mutations in the spike protein. The uh, affinity seems to be as high as the UK or maybe even a little bit higher. The problem is the Madeira has actually looked at this and it appears that the uh, efficacy go of the vaccine goes from 94% to 50%. And also the, the new antigen uh, vaccine um, also found the same exact thing. Uh, they use a full-length spike protein with a uh, what's called an adjuvant to stimulate the immune system, and they find that their vir- their vaccine went from 94 to 50 percent as well. They're small numbers, but they do suggest that we may be in trouble if that South African uh, uh, strain gets widely spread. And the problem is um, the regular virus has an R sub zero or reproductive rate of 2 to 2.5. The UK strain and the South African strain are somewhere around 4. So they infect, someone gets that one, on average you'll infect 4 people, while the old virus infects 2.5. You can tell, you can see that very quickly, the one that has the higher reproductive rate will take over. And that's what happened in the UK, and that's also what's happened in South Africa. 
So, and if the vaccine, the vaccine will stop the UK version once we get a herd immunity, but uh, Bill can comment this more, but I think we're at about 4% of the population right now has been vaccinated. So we're, we need to be at 80, the lowest I've seen estimate is 60%. Most people say 80%. We could require as high as 90% vaccinated before we achieve herd immunity. So we're nowhere close to herd immunity. So meanwhile, if that South African virus gets around, uh, we're going to have to have a different booster. And Madeira has already designed an mRNA that has those sequences in it. Uh, so we will address that a mutant. Uh, but then you're going to have to have a third shot. So this really complicates the entire vaccination process and is of great concern. Bill, I want to turn to you in a second because Fred's raising obviously some very pragmatic points around the delivery of the vaccine um, and what's been happening with the both the supply chain and people's responses to the availability of the vaccine. But before we do, Fred, it it it, it almost sounds as though the virus has a mind of its own, uh, which it doesn't. But maybe you can just, um, in in sort of very plain English, explain how a virus mutates and why and what we have to be right. conscious about. This is an RNA virus. RNA viruses are very inaccurate in reproducing their RNA. Their replicates, there's not a good proofreading. This is true of, this is true of been found in HIV as well. And there they had to use three drugs to treat it because of these multiple mutations. Well, that's true of all RNA viruses. So we would, they would normally, this virus will create what we call point mutations, single uh, codons will alter a single amino acid, and that's to be expected. And the more that it's spread, the more people it's in, the probability of getting a mutation that's advantageous, um, if we're not uh, using masks and not distancing and we're coming together in large groups, uh, the these viruses with, we call them gain-of-function mutations. If you make a change in amino acid and it improves the ability to bind, then it's a gain of function. It's more efficient, more effective. That will take over, and that's to be that was to be expected. However, we the the South African is particularly worrisome because it ended up with three different mutations in the spike protein. That's what I call bad luck. Fred, this is Bill. I just have one quick question along those lines that I've been asked several times, and I didn't have a good answer for. If one of the things that we've been told about the South African vaccine, virus especially, variant, is that it does not seem to be any worse in terms of causing disease. But if it's causing it to infect, to affect cells, to get into cells, create more copies of itself, then it seems that that would create a higher viral load, which is what makes it more infectious, which seems that would also cause more disease. I'm trying to reconcile that. I actually talked to a physician in South Africa yesterday, uh, and his impression is it is more severe. And the United UK one, they're now thinking it's 30% more severe than the other strains. So that's hard to tease out. How do you measure severity of illness? Doctors aren't putting scores that often on the cases. So that's a very hard uh, piece of data to come up with. But uh, the impression now 
The prevailing impression now is that these viruses actually cause more severe disease in addition to spreading more rapidly. The other important thing is that the uh, J&J data, the first, the first large tranche of data coming out of Johnson & Johnson vaccine was released this morning. And their data says that e even the testing that was done in South Africa still showed 58% uh, efficacy um, against severe disease, not against all disease, but against severe disease. Um, that's, that is encouraging. What, it what hopefully that is telling us is that it's still going to be a very useful. You know, remember that that flu vaccine is only typically 50% uh, efficacy. So uh, that's going to be good. The overall numbers on the J&J &J vaccine are 70%, 72% in the United States. Uh, when you balance everything, it was about 60% across the board. But the United States portion of the J&J &J testing was 72% effective in preventing disease and 100% effective in preventing severe disease. Yes, and I, I think there's reason to believe that the, the vaccine will still prevent severe disease, even though it only protects 50% of people from getting any infection. Bill, you have had you know extensive experience with rolling out vaccines and we'll call it the logistics. Maybe give people a sense here in terms of what's happening. Obviously, there have been shortages in supplies across the country. The Biden administration is responding to that. And, you know, the big the big question is, you know, Fred alluded to is when do we get to what I would say is herd immunity? When will there be a sufficient supply of vaccines? And maybe more importantly than, than just the date, what else do we have to do as a nation to make sure that the vaccines are getting out and people are taking them? So several aspects of that. One thing is that we expected there to be a fairly significant ramp up in the in the manufacturing and distribution of vaccines over the course of January. When we look at the numbers from both Moderna and Pfizer, they've actually been fairly flat. They had about nearly 3 million doses each that were released right at the very beginning because those are doses they had basically kind of stockpiled ready for release. Since then, we've been hovering just over 2 million each without any significant ramp up. In fact, at the beginning of the month, it ramped down a bit. Now it's starting to ramp up again. We've just been told in the last 24 hours to expect a 16% increase in the number of uh, vaccines getting distributed to the states. And the states then are reflecting that in additional distribution to their actual vaccination points. If that's the case, this is going to be the first major ramp up that we're seeing in quantity of, va of vaccines available for administration. A couple things are happening that are going to uh, raise the, the basic supply of vaccine, and that's the additional plants coming on board. A uh, major plant in Baltimore came on board, and then also Sanofi, which is traditionally thought of as one of Pfizer's biggest co uh, competitors, announced that they've agreed with Pfizer that they're going to start manufacturing the Pfizer vaccine at one of their largest plants. Um, they're not going to come online with that until April because they've got to finish some manufacturing that they had in place, and then they have to retool a little bit because this is a different process than any of the Sanofi vaccines. But that's going to be a, a major change. So I think we are starting to see the first part of the uh, supply distribution administration chain uh, come, on, come into place. The strategic distribution from manufacturer to states 
has actually been going pretty well. The, the holdup has been getting it from the state level distribution points out to the individual administration sites. But even that is not as bad as the, uh, as the media would have you believe. They've been reporting numbers like on the order of, of 30 to 40 percent of vaccine available having been administered. Well, that's true, but you also have to remember that that for the first four weeks of this vaccine process, half of the vaccine was being held aside in order to be ready to deliver the second shot. Um, so when they were reporting 30, 40 percent vaccine administered, then no one bothered to say, well, that's because 50 percent is being held because we need to have it ready to do the second shot. Well, now that second shot is is in operation and that vaccine is being used. And the further we get into this, the there is still going to be amount held aside. But that's going to be on the order of you know, a couple of million doses at a time that are held. At, and the further we go into this, the smaller that percentage will be. So uh, the process is ramping up. The, the big box pharmacy uh, providers in many states are starting to come online this week or over the next couple of weeks. That's going to be a major change also. And finally, I'd say the, the other big thing that's happening is that the states are across the board pretty much finalizing their distribution strategies who are, and their prioritization strategy. There, there will still be tweaks as we go, but in most states, we're, start, we're starting to get to the um, at least 65 and older, and in many states, uh, anyone who has significant comorbid conditions. But that is still going to take us through probably through March and into April before we have the significant amount of that population done. And one last thing of interest on along the lines of availability of vaccine, um, there were several commentators over the weekend who said that they are not going to be surprised if we are actually sooner than we expect finding an overabundance of vaccine because of the vaccine refusals. We're still seeing at least in populations where we're able to get a vaccine refusal number, which is not always easy to get. Um, it's still running around 20 to 25 percent. If that remains across the board, we may have a vaccine that we have to start pushing to get people to receive vaccine uh, by the April time frame. Bill, one, one question I have is, is it the best strategy from a, uh, a supply chain viewpoint to hold back half the vaccine for the second dose? Why not just take as the new vaccine, the new supply comes in, do the second dose, vaccinating as many people as possible with the first dose, knowing that actually after 14 days, it does appear the first dose is uh, at least 50% efficacy. Um, wouldn't that be a, a better way to, to achieve uh, widespread vaccination? It would be. I think that there was just at the very beginning of this, there was a lot of fear that that you don't want to waste vaccine, waste a first dose by not having that second dose available. So when there was lack of confidence in the supply chain and being able to deliver that second dose, there was uh, people at first at the federal level, and then the Fed started distributing everything. And then even at the state level, they wanted to hold that reserve so as to make sure that that second dose is not is not wasted. And I think that, will, that throughout the process, there's going to be some degree of buffer, but that the more 
confidence that we have in the entire supply chain from the very beginning, the, the less of a buffer that we're going to need. There will always be some degree of buffer because right. we want to make sure we can get that second dose. And that buffer is going to come down further and further and further. Now, it's interesting. AstraZeneca made a little error in, I think it was Brazil, in their their study and that they accidentally gave a lower dose, the first dose, and then a second dose. And in looking and for some reason, they got a higher efficacy in, in, in that group. And when they looked at it, that in that group had a longer interval between the first and second dose. And now the thought is that maybe longer intervals might actually give you more protective, more protection than the three week interval. I haven't seen that. Just the the you know in the UK that they are they're very they are pushing the the second dose out a little bit. It's been for supply issues, and it's not because they think it may be better, but because they at least believe that it's not going to be worse. So the other the other big thing um, I didn't mention before with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is now we know what their t- the t- probable timeline is because we can reflect on what it was with Moderna and with um, Pfizer. So they released their initial load of data today. That's going to go to the FDA reviewers. FDA reviewers will go through it next week for the most part and release their uh, review of the data either the week of the uh, the 8th or the week of the 15th. And then that would mean that we are going to, we go to the Thursday meeting of the Vaccine Advisory Committee on either Thursday the 11th or Thursday the 18th. That's kind of gives us a, a within a week or two idea of when the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be available. Now, when it's available, it's not going to be in huge quantity right off the bat, probably in million per week quantities. Uh, but that's still, that's going to add a, a roughly 20% to our available uh, immediate supply of vaccine. Um, And that will have a a measurable impact on our ability to get vaccine, especially to the at-risk populations. One other thing on on mentioning at-risk populations is that in cities such as Los Angeles, and Los Angeles probably has the best data on this, in, in populations of color in L.A., especially the black population and even more especially the um, Hispanic population, they're seeing uh, disease rates that are, that are roughly 50 percent to as much as twice that in the, in the white population. Um, so there's a, a large push to just using the philosophy of we need to vaccinate populations where we are seeing the most case growth that taking taking any uh, racial issues out of this, just saying in terms of where what is the population that is seeing case growth, just as we see it in the in the at risk because of disease state at risk at risk because of age state. These are populations where uh, there may be decisions made to really push to get it into these populations uh, in order to control case growth across the board. So, Bill, let me uh, you alluded to the continued resistance that people have to taking the vaccine and maybe just sort of briefly i'd love to get your and fred's views about why this is and how that you know how we can overcome the resistance well and as we've talked about before uh there's about 20 percent that resist masks 20 percent that resist the social distancing and 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 uh, refuse not to go to small spaces like dining and bars, and twenty percent 
refuse the vaccine. And this is the, uh, in every population, there's this group, this 20% that resist all change. And the only way that you really can have an impact is um, you can try persuasion, but it usually doesn't work. You need some sort of uh, something to motivate them, some benefit or a punishment, one or the other. Now, I think a benefit would be better. And uh, for instance, you may, uh, and this has been talked about, and, and Bill may be able to comment this. Uh, if uh, I have a card now that I can show that says I'm vaccinated, and I don't know yet whether that will impact my ability to travel uh, by air or any mass transit, and I don't know whether as yet whether that will impact my ability to travel across the you know to other countries, and uh, that could also be used to decide whether you had permission to uh, dine in a closed environment. So I think there are a lot of situations where having a vaccine would give you more freedom. Um, and certainly you're much safer. And whether that would be a motivation for this 20% that don't want to take it. I don't know, Bill, what do you think? You know, as, as the card is a very, is a, a simple Xeroxed card. So I, I'm afraid there'd be too much Counterfeit. uh, counterfeiting of the card <laughs> by people who just wanted to have something to go out to, to eat dinner. Um, so I, I, that, that worries me. I really think when we are going to see appreciable official change in your ability to go do things, and was when we start seeing the number of cases per 100,000 per day drop to the low single digits. I think we'll probably have, I mean, we're already seeing restaurants starting to open. Um, but I think that it's rather than saying that your ability to do things is based on your vaccine status. I think it's going to be that society's ability to do things is based on the societal measure, which is either cases per day or hospitalizations or, or unfortunately, the death rate. But I think that's where when we're going to see back off from the uh, from the governments on various restrictions and recommended uh, mitigation. So one one statistic that I've heard is that uh, within frontline workers in hospitals, nurses may be more reluctant to take the vaccine than doctors. I don't know whether you guys have any insights on that. Yes, in, in our system, that is true. And actually, I'm on the wards right now, and uh, I have been working very hard to convince all our nurses to take the vaccine and point out that I had no side effects and that this is an ex- a very effective and uh, so far an extremely safe vaccine much safer than influenza, which has egg products in it. And a number of people are allergic to various egg products. As we talked about before, this vaccine is uh, just a lipid uh, uh, nanoparticle, a few cations, and the RNA. So it doesn't have much that you can react to. The other thing I just saw today, that Pfizer has re uh, Um, estimated the number of severe reactions, and it was, I think, 11 per million. It's down to five per million uh, of strong allergic reactions that would be considered severe. So uh, that's a very low number. And and so this is, I I predict this will turn out to be one of the safest vaccines uh, we've ever had. So, um, and I'll leave this point because I want to conclude with another question. But Uh, Both of you have made the point that very often um, the decision to take a vaccine may depend upon, you know, the community that you live in. There may be cultural reasons 
why people might be resistant. There are certainly historical reasons why certain groups might be resistant. And the importance of possibly the government identifying who are the influencers in this space, who are the mess- the right messengers within certain communities. Absolutely. And actually, DeSantis uh, uh, has uh, started pushing the vaccine through the churches. And we think that particularly uh, in minority populations, churches are an area that are very trusted, where the community comes together. And I think that is a potentially very effective strategy for improving trust and encouraging people to actually accept the vaccine. Exactly. And I know some ministers here in New York have taken the lead uh, to communicate with their congregation for precisely that reason. All right, just uh, switching over, uh, we're also getting additional information I heard an interview of uh, Dr. Fauci uh, in the last 24 hours that with this South African and the UK strain, the importance of adhering, even if you have had the vaccination or, or the second dose of the vaccination, you still must adhere to the kinds of protocols that they've been talking about now for close to a year. And I thought maybe we'd get both your views on that, including uh, this notion of possible uh, double masking. So I was going to say, I, I, I actually wrote something yesterday on the double masking. In the early summer, there was a fairly extensive study done looking at the effectiveness of masks. And clearly the N95 and then a KN95 were found to be the most effective because not only did they filter, but they sealed. Uh, so for both inbound and outbound particles, they were effective. But the second most effective was a was a cloth mask, a three-layered cloth mask with two layer, the inner and the outer layer being natural fiber, usually usually cotton, and then a middle layer that is a uh, randomly oriented, non-woven strand fiber, typically a polyester that acted more like a filter. And what that tends to do is it, it the the diff, the two cloth layers tend to very much slow down anything, and then this non um, the the non-woven, non-oriented strand fiber tends to basically stop any most particles from going through. Um, that was found to be very effective. And then below that was surgical masks were less effective than a three-layered cloth mask. And then the single layer, the the uh, gaiters, that type of thing, was found to be very ineffective to the point that, in fact, in many, in many settings, they are not recommended at all. Uh, so that was some good study that was done. Then over the weekend or early this week, uh, Dr. Fauci, basically he said, well, if one mask is good, then it's only common sense that two masks must be better. And my response to that was, well, no, we're, we're saying that we're going to be science oriented. Now, am I saying that two masks would would not in the long run prove to, prove to have some benefit? I'm not going to say that, but I think there's good reason why we know that the we know with the three-layered mask, we have good testing that does that, and then we know that that any mask that does not seal, which would also include a double masking, that's also not going to seal. That's going to allow particles to go in and out through the sides of the mask, not through the mask. So I'm not overly enamored with the idea of double masking. Yeah, I, I'm using the N95 myself in the hospital because it's sealed and that is the safest. The problem is it is very hard to breathe. I mean, I I get a little short of breath when I'm walking. I, I, I wouldn't say I feel uncomfortable. So we I'm afraid a lot of people would not like an N95. The good surgical masks actually have a charge on them so that they actually will attract 
the viral particles by charge and help screen. So theoretically, two would might be a benefit. But as Bill says, it still can come in the sides. And when you breathe in, if you take a deep breath, you're going to pull air from the sides in those masks. And it doesn't matter how many layers you're still going to be able to go around the side. And one of the one of the major uh, mainstream media publications uh, made the point that these masks are so porous that oxygen gets through them just fine. So what are people worried about? Well, but it's just just like Fred was saying about the N95 mask. If you've ever had to wear one for any length of time, you just get tired. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how what kind of respiratory issues you may have. It just gets tiring to push air in and out through that mask. And if you've got a double mask, it's the same idea. You're going to have to push air in and out. Plus, the harder you're breathing, the more air is going to escape through the sides of the mask in any non-sealing mask. So I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. The other thing is, the key is, there are a certain percentage of people that aren't wearing them. If we could get them to wear it, that would be have a much better effect than everybody, the people that are double masking. Assumption here is that all of the other protocols that you've spoken about, that the CDC and Dr. Fauci have spoken about, should remain in effect and people you know, should continue to practice caution even if they have been vaccinated. I really, and this is what I've been telling all the people that I work with, is don't base your actions on whether you're vaccinated or not. Base it on what the case rate is. And I just, I use case rate because that's the easiest number to get. The the case rate, and it's not, you don't start even considering backing off on your mitigations until you're down under 10 cases per 100,000 per day, averaged over seven days. And I really think more when you're down to low, low single digits, that's when you can start thinking about being maybe a little less careful. But you know, until we're down below zero, below one, um, that's not, it's, we have to get that low before it's considered negligible. And Bill, I, I think, isn't the average around 70 per 100,000 right now in the United States? Right now, we're, we're actually, we're, we're down, we're down about 20% in the last week, and it's between 50 and 70, right? We're somewhere in that range. But, uh, but all except for two states are, are, have shown a significant downward trend in the, the last uh, two, uh, two, last week. I want to thank both of you. And next week, uh, there should be more data on some of the other vaccines that are coming on the market. So your views will be helpful. I note from a geopolitical standpoint, the Russian vaccine is being administered in uh, Argentina. Uh, the Chinese vaccine, I think, was being tested in Brazil. Uh, so I look forward to a continued conversation next week. Okay. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 